0: The syncretic trend continued to thrive even during the Mughal rule. Both Babur and Humayun had broad visions and inclination to support Islam and Hinduism. However, owing to their short rule, not many positive steps could be initiated. It was Akbar who took decisive steps in this direction. Akbar removed the jizya, pilgrim tax for the Hindus, immediately on assuming power. He also passed a law treating both Hindus and Muslims in the same way. Hindu epics like Mahabharat, Ramayana, and Vedic literature were translated into Persian at his insistence for the convenience of Muslim readers. Later, Darashiko translated Hindu theological texts like Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, and Yoga Vashishta into Persian. He wrote a book, Majma'ul Bahrain, the Meeting Place of Two Oceans, a comparative study of Hindu and Muslim mystic philosophy. He even wore a ring on his finger with the inscription of Prabhu in Sanskrit on it. J. J. Roy Berman, Hindu-Muslim syncretism in India, Economic and Political Weekly, May 1996. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season 9 of the Islamic History podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 9-8, Aurangzeb's Brothers. Now, let's do a quick recap of the previous episode before we get into today's story. As governor of the Deccan, Emperor Shah Jahan's son, Aurangzeb, attempted to subdue the remaining Deccan sultanates and he got close to conquering Golconda and Bijapur, but his brother, Dadashiko, intervened and he had to retreat both times. Meanwhile, the Maratha commander Shivaji began raiding Mughal territory in the Deccan. Aurangzeb's forces defeated the Marathas, however, Aurangzeb missed an opportunity to stamp out the Maratha threat for good. In 1657, Emperor Shah Jahan fell ill and his death appeared imminent. Dadashiko assumed control of the empire while his three brothers, Aurangzeb, Shah Shuja, and Murad Baksh, allied against him. Dadashiko's forces were defeated and he fled towards Delhi. Meanwhile, Aurangzeb and Murad occupied Agra and put their father, who had recovered from his illness by this time, under house arrest. Now, with Dada on the run, Aurangzeb assumes control of the empire. And so with that, let's continue with our main story today. Aurangzeb gets rid of his rivals. Agra had been conquered by the joint forces of Prince Murad and Prince Aurangzeb. However, the reality was that the throne could only go to one person, and this ultimately led to a fierce rivalry between these two brothers. Murad was jealous of Aurangzeb's leadership position, and Aurangzeb was aware of this jealousy and was therefore cautious of Murad. With their father under house arrest, however, their joint armies had to work together in pursuit of Dadashiko, and they were roughly about three weeks behind Dada, who had fled to Delhi. During their journey, as they were pursuing Dada Shiku and moving towards Delhi, Murad began to secretly correspond with their father, emperor, or I guess former emperor, Shah Jahan. He began plotting to eliminate Aurangzeb and take the throne for himself. However, Aurangzeb intercepted one of the letters between his father and his brother, and it revealed their plans. I have bestowed the sovereignty of all of India upon my esteemed son, Murad. I urge you to exercise extreme caution and patience in this matter, keeping this secret from anyone, no matter how close. In a few days' time, invite your brother, Aurangzeb and his son to your camp under the pretext of a banquet, and bid them farewell forever. When he discovered this letter, Aurangzeb devised a scheme of his own. He began sending Murad various gifts and kind messages and all of this was meant to remove or allay any suspicions that Murad Bach may have had of Aurangzeb. And then in June 1658, Murad returned from a hunting trip and Aurangzeb invited him to a banquet at his camp. Basically, he was flipping his father's plan on his brother. As expected at this banquet, Prince Murad consumed a lot of alcohol and got drunk. And we've talked before of the rampant alcoholism amongst the Mughal royalty. However, Aurangzeb, he was the devout Muslim, he did not touch any of the alcohol. And with Murad intoxicated and beginning to basically conk out, a slave girl came and began massaging his head until he fell asleep. Meanwhile, Murad's bodyguard, a eunuch named Shahbaz, was lured outside the tent where Aurangzeb's men jumped on him and strangled him to death. And with the eunuch out the way, Aurangzeb's men arrested and shackled Murad and sent him first to the dungeons of, of the fort of Salimgard, which was located on an island in the Yamuna River in Delhi, and then later transferred him to the prison of Gwalior. And so, with Murad out the way, Aurangzeb continued his pursuit of Dadashiko, arriving in Delhi in July 1658. Once he was in Delhi, Aurangzeb finally decided that it was time to proclaim himself the emperor. He had been acting like the emperor, but he never actually took the title. With Dadashiko on the run, Shah Shuja in Bengal, Murad in prison, and his father under house arrest, there was no one to contest Aurangzeb's claim to the throne. Let's briefly switch over to Dadashiko and see what he's doing. While he was in Delhi, Dadashiko had raided the treasury to fund his army. He was hoping his son, Suleiman Shiko, would join him, but he didn't get there in time. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Dada Shiko's son Suleiman Shiko had defeated Shah Shuja as Shah Shuja was coming from Bengal towards Agra. When Shah Shuja was defeated, he headed back for Bengal, and Suleiman Shiko continued to pursue him. But in this pursuit, that put him far away from his father, so he was not able to get back in time to support his father against Aurangzeb and Murad. When Dada Shiko learned that Aurangzeb's armies were approaching Delhi, Dada abandoned Delhi and fled north to Lahore. In Lahore, Dada Shiko obtained even more money and weapons because his father had stockpiled a large quantity there in a future plan to hopefully raid Kandahar and get it back from the Persians. We discussed how they got that in previous episodes. Aurangzeb followed Darashiko to Lahore and that prompted Darashiko to flee once again with Arangzeb's army still three weeks behind him. With Aurangzeb's army hot on his tail, Darashiko sought refuge in Sindh and followed the same path taken by his, I guess, great-great-grandfather Humayun when he fled from Sher-Shah-Suri. If none of that makes sense, we discussed this in the previous season, episode 8-12, go and i catch up over there. Now, Dada Shiko had a sizable force with him. He had about 20,000 soldiers, but they were not as experienced as Arangzeb's troops. What Dada was hoping for, he was hoping to find an ally to help him or perhaps get an alliance with the Persian Safavids. But even with this large army, Aurangzeb used deceit to sow discord in Dada's army, in Dada's camp. He began leaking forged letters to create rifts between Dada Shiko and his allies. And this plan succeeded and it caused several of Dada's allies to abandon him. Though it is possible that many of them may have simply lost faith in Dada Shiko's cause. All of this running from a wrong zip convinced many soldiers that Dada Shiko was not going to win this fight. So before long, his army had dwindled down to 14,000, from 20,000 down to 14,000, and it was continuing to shrink. In late September 1658, Arongzeb left a portion of his army to continue the pursuit of Dadashiko while he went off to deal with Shah Shuja. This brings us to the Battle of Kajwa. So while a portion of his army was pursuing Dadashiko, Arongzeb turned his attention towards Shah Shuja. Aurangzeb's other brother, Shah Shuja, and his former ally, had gathered his forces and was marching west towards Agra. Now, he was really trying to grab the throne, but Shah Shuja's stated purpose was that he wanted to rescue his father, who was the imprisoned emperor, Shah Jahan. Aurangzeb sent his son, Muhammad Sultan, ahead of him to cut off Shah Shuja's advance before he could reach Agra. Aurangzeb followed behind later with the bulk of the army. This ultimately led to the Battle of Kajwa on January 5, 1659, which took place about 172 miles east of Accra. Aurangzeb's army was much larger than Shah Shuja's. He had nearly 90,000 soldiers in his military force, which made his army almost really more than three times the size of Shah Shuja. Aurangzeb also had experienced commanders, including Jumla and Islam Khan. So as they prepared for a battle, Arangzeb divided his army into two forces: one in the front, and then a reserve force just behind. The reserves were led by two other commanders: one named Kilich Khan Bahadur and another named Shaista Khan. Shah Shuja's army was much smaller, however, only about twenty-five thousand troops. However, he had enlisted European gunners for his cannons, which gave him the best available cannons for his time. Shah Shuja had also obtained the latest matchlock rifles from local European traders, and he had 10,000 war elephants, including three well-armored elephants covered in chain mail. So even though he had less soldiers, we could say that Shah Shuja's army was perhaps more technologically advanced. Before daylight, of the morning that the battle began, Raja Jaswan Singh, defected from Aurangzeb. Raja Jaswan Singh was the Raja of Mewar and was initially Dadashiko's ally. However, he was defeated by Aurangzeb and switched sides, and all of this was discussed in the previous episode. Raja Jaswan Singh took about 14,000 soldiers with him when he defected. This caused tremendous confusion and damage as Raja Jaswan Singh's men had to fight their way out of Aurangzeb's camp and he took a significant portion of the army and supplies and then fled to Rajasthan. This betrayal, of course, did not weaken Aurangzeb's resolve. You will see that he is one of the most resolute people you have ever heard of, but his position was much weaker than it had been before. Well, the show must go on and the battle begins with both armies exchanging cannon fire. Then Shah Shuja unleashed his elephants and Aurangzeb responded by ordering his front lines to fall back. Then he commanded his cannons to start firing long-range shots and then his matchlock men fired on the advancing elephants. Shah Shuja ordered his son Bulan Akhtar to lead a cavalry charge along with the elephants and this temporarily gave him the upper hand. Momentum swung even further in Shah Shuja's favor when Arangzeb's cavalry commander, Islam Khan, was killed by a cannonball. And with his death, Aurangzeb's cavalry began to collapse. Seeing victory slipping away, Aurangzeb ordered a full-scale assault by his reserve forces. So his two other officers, Kilich Khan Bahadur and Shaista Khan, They led the reserve infantry forward and they were supported by the matchlock men as well. The reserves neutralized many of Shah Shuja's advantages from the rampaging elephants and now the pendulum of momentum began to swing away from Shah Shuja and more towards Arangzeb. Then, Aurangzeb's other commander, Mirajumla led an advance towards the center of the battlefield and they had to withstand a blistering artillery barrage from Shah Shuja's men. Shah Shuja's son, Bulan Akhtar, regrouped the cavalry and formed up around Shah Shuja's cannons. Then Shah Shuja's cannons intensified their fire on Arangzeb's cannons and Arangzeb's cannons slowly inched forward along with Mirajumla's uh, infantry, slowly inched forward under this blistering barrage from Shah Shuja's uh, artillery. But eventually, finally, Arangzeb's army just began to overwhelm Shah Shuja's positions. It was just too many people. Arangzeb's numbers gave him the advantage. Shah Shuja ordered a retreat, but by this time it was just too late. Aurangzeb's forces overpowered Shah Shuja's forces and most of them surrendered. Meanwhile, Shah Shuja himself he abandoned the army and fled back towards Bengal. So, with Shah Shuja on the run, let's go back to Dadashiko. Now, initially, Dadashiko had planned to perhaps go west towards Persia, but he eventually decided against that because it was just too dangerous, it was too far away, and he only had about 3,000 men left. By November 1658, Arongzem's men had pursued Dadashiko all the way to Tata, which is in southern modern day Pakistan. It was at this point that Dadashiko finally caught a break. Rongzeb who was dealing with the battle with Shah Shuja, he called those men who were pursuing Dadashiko. he called them back north to help with the fight against Shah Shuja. With his pressure off of him, Dadashiko turned east and headed back towards Gujarat. There, the governor of Ahmadabad decided to help Dadashiko and help him raise a new army. Ahmedabad was the capital of Gujarat at that time. And then Dada Shiko got even more good news. Jaswan Singh, the Raja of Mawar, invited Dada to join him in Rajasthan. This was the same Rajput who had betrayed Aurangzeb at Kajwa. Jaswan Singh wanted to ally with his former ally, Dada Shiko, and lead a joint army along with Dada to capture Agra. This was the news that Dadashiko had been hoping for. Dadashiko agreed to this proposal and headed north towards Rajasthan. With his new army from Gujarat, if he could combine that with 20,000 Rajput soldiers from Rajasthan, that would be enough to pose a serious challenge to Aurangzeb. So he traveled through the swamps and salt plains of the Ran of Kutch to join up with Jaswant Singh. Word got back to Aurangzeb of this proposed alliance, and Aurangzeb Got to work. He began sending letters to Jaswan Singh, warning him of the danger of this action. He used threats and bribes at the same time to try to change Jaswan Singh's mind. He threatened him with destruction if he continued down this path, but also offered him bribes of titles and wealth if he abandoned Dada. Now, Jaswan Singh, he was initially an ally of Dada Shiko. Was defeated by Arongzeb and switched over and joined Arongzeb's side. Then he defected from Arongzeb right before a major battle. And now he wants to join with Dadashiko again. What do you think happened? Jaswan Sink switched sides yet again and abandoned Dadashiko. So by March 1659, Aurangzeb was heading for Rajasthan to face Dadashiko, having just defeated Shah Shuja, who was now on the run, and Dadashiko was once again on his own. Now he still had the army from Gujarat, of course, but he didn't have those extra 20,000 Rajput soldiers that would have given him the, the edge he needed against Aurangzeb. So Dadashiko, he couldn't run anymore. He saw what happened last time when he ran. When he ran before, he lost his soldiers and they, and they abandoned him and lost confidence in him. So he knew he had to stand and fight his brother. So he did the best he could. He took the high ground. He constructed strong defenses. He fortified his position and he waited for Arongzeb to arrive. The battle began and Arongzeb sent wave after wave of men to fight uphill towards Dara's forces. Now Dara Shiko had the superior position. If you learn nothing else from Star Wars you know that when you have the high ground you have the superior position. Dadashiko's fortified artillery and musket men just kept firing on Arangzeb's men and pushing them back wave after wave. But eventually, after three days of intense battle, Aurangzeb's numbers finally overwhelmed Darashiko's army. And Darashiko was forced to flee the battlefield yet again. He fled back to Gujarat, hoping that the governor would help him again, but when he got there he found the gates had been closed. He was being locked out. Meanwhile, Aurangzeb returned to Agra and left his officers and a portion of the army to continue the chase after Dadashiko. Back in Agra, Aurangzeb was ready to officially be coronated as emperor. He had already claimed the throne in July 1658, we mentioned that earlier, but he chose to postpone a formal coronation until his position was secure. But now that all of his rivals were either eliminated or on the brink of destruction, he was ready to take that next step. So the khutbah was read in his name, coins were struck in his name, and he assumed the royal title of Abul Muthafar Muhayyuddin Muhammad Arangzeb Bahadur Alamgir Ghazi. Meanwhile, Darashiko, with no other options, decided to head west yet again. He crossed the run of Kutch back into Sin, once again hoping to escape to Persia, similar to what Humayun had done many years earlier. On this journey, tragically, his beloved wife, Nadira Banu, passed away from dysentery and exhaustion, and is no surprise considering all the running that Dadashika was doing. Dadashiko now is heartbroken, he's out of options, so he goes to seek refuge with a local landlord named Malik Jiwan. There was some history between Dadashiko and Malik Jiwan. Many years in the past, Dadashiko has saved his life. His father, Emperor Shah Jahan, had ordered Malik Jiwan's execution. And his execution was going to be carried out by elephant, meaning he was going to be trampled by an elephant, which was a common form of capital punishment during the Mughal era. But Dadashiko intervened and got his father to rescind the order. And so Dadashiko is hoping that Malik Jiwan would remember this favor and perhaps offer him some help. But as the saying goes, when times get tough, even your own shadow abandons you. Malik Jiwan accepted Dadashiko and his entourage into his home, and then he betrayed him. He had Dadashiko and his son, Sipashiko, arrested and sent back to Delhi. Dadashiko and his son arrived in Delhi on August 23, 1659. On August 29th, Aurangzeb had them paraded through the streets, dressed in rags with dirt on their heads. Just another form of humiliation. Positioned alongside, Darashiko and his son were soldiers with drawn swords, and their orders were to behead them if they tried to escape. Let's listen to an excerpt from this incident. Arangzeb had expected that they would be booed and laughed at by the local populace. Mobs do tend to side with the winners but was much displeased to see how many people openly cried for the hapless prince who had, in his time, been quite popular. The treacherous Malik Jiwan even found himself pelted with stones and garbage by the outraged populace. All of this only strengthened Aurangzeb's resolve. Dara had to die as soon as possible. Dirk Collier, The Mughals and Their India we know from previous episodes that there was no love lost between these two men, these two brothers, Arongzeb and Dadashiko. Arongzeb had labeled Dadashiko the chief of the atheists and even considered him a non-Muslim. So what happened next is no surprise. While he was in prison, Dadashiko wrote to his brother pleading for his life. He asked just to retire to a simple estate with one of his slave girls to live out the rest of his life, and be out of politics forever. But if a Zeb didn't forgive his own father, if he didn't forgive his own son, what do you think he was going to do with his mortal enemy, his own brother? Now you'll see what I mean about him not forgiving his son in a few minutes, inshallah. On August 30th, that was the day after that humiliating parade through the streets, a couple of slaves entered Dada's prison cell and murdered him. His severed head was sent to Arangzeb, who refused to look at it. He is reported to have said, Just as I did not gaze upon this kafir's face during his lifetime, I have no desire to do so now. There is also a rumor, though very much unverified, that Dadashiko's severed head was sent to Shah Jahan on a covered platter, but I believe this is just a story and not true at all. Now let's discuss the end of Shah Shuja. Murad Bakhsh and Muhammad Sultan. Mir Jumla and Aurangzeb's son Muhammad Sultan pursued Shah Shuja relentlessly for months. The imperial army, now under Mir Jumla and Muhammad Sultan, had about thirty thousand men compared to Shah Shuja's remaining ten thousand men. Now there were a few battles between these two sides, but Aurangzeb's army always won. At some point during this period, during this pursuit, Arangzeb's son, Mohammed Sultan, betrayed his father and Mirtajumla and defected over to Shah Shuja's side. There are a couple of explanations about why this might have happened. One idea is that Muhammad Sultan was tired of being bossed around by Mirtajumla, who was the actual one in charge. But it should also be noted that Muhammad Sultan was married to Shah Shuja's daughter, and that may have had something to do with his decision. Now, this defection by Muhammad Sultan over to his uncle's side, it made things more difficult for Mirjumla and the imperial army, but it really didn't change things. In May 1660, Shah Shuja and his family took refuge in Arakan. Arakan is near the Burmese border where the Rohingya Muslims of today now reside. Shah Shuja and his family went to Arakan and disappeared. It is believed that they were most likely killed by the Magh tribe of Arakan in 1661. Also in 1661, a man named Ali Naki demanded justice for his father's death. He went to Arangzeb and demanded justice for his father, who had been the minister of finance of Gujarat back when these fratricidal wars first began. If you go back to the previous episode and listen to it, we mentioned how Murad Bakhsh proclaimed himself emperor and needed money, and so he killed the minister of finance and raided the treasury of Gujarat. This was discussed in the previous episode. And so with this... In December 1661, Aurangzeb ordered Murad Baksh to be executed and he was at Gwalior prison. And with that, the final brother has been eliminated. Darashiko was killed in his prison cell, Shah Shuja disappeared in the jungles of, of uh, Burma, and Murad Baksh has just been executed for murder. Meanwhile, Mohammed Sultan, that is Aurangzeb's son, returns to his father, and begs for mercy. But we know how Arongzeb is by now. Arongzeb refuses to show him any mercy. Arangzeb ordered his son to be thrown into the dungeons of Fort Salimgar, and then he was transferred to the prison of Gwalior, where his two uncles had resided for some time, and that's where he remained until he died 14 years later. Finally, we have Arongzeb's remaining nephews. Dada's eldest son, Suleiman Shiko, had been too far away to help at the Battle of Samurga back in June 1658. And as the pendulum began to swing decisively in Aurangzeb's favor, Suleiman Shiko's generals began to abandon him. Suleiman Shiko had wanted, he had meant to, he had planned to cut across North India to join his father while Dada Shiko was still in Lahore. But Arangzeb, once again the experienced military commander, Arongzeb had blocked all river crossings into the Punjab and Suleiman Shiko was cut off from his father. So with no means to reconnect with his father, Suleiman Shiko decided to seek refuge with the Raja of Garwal. Garwal is in the modern state of Uttarakhand, about 120 miles north of Delhi. In 1660, Aurangzeb sent a message to the Raja of Garwal and ordered him to arrest Suleiman Shiko. The Raja obeyed, and Suleiman Shiko found himself as well transferred to the wonderful confines of Gwalior prison. While he was there, he was forced to drink a poisonous opium mixture and died in May 1662. Finally, we have Sipar Shiko, that is Dadashiko's son. He was paraded alongside his father by Arangzeb. Sipar Shiko was also sent to Gwalior prison where he was able to experience his wonderful amenities. He was eventually released after 14 years in prison. He then married one of Arangzeb's daughters. And interestingly, also one of Morad's sons also married one of Arangzeb's daughters. Perhaps it's, this was a way of Arangzeb trying to Men-family ties with the second generation after wiping out the first generation. Allah knows best. Muhyiddin Muhammad Aurangzeb Alamgir Now that he was officially the emperor, Aurangzeb began to reinforce the Islamic nature of the empire. He began by introducing or reintroducing the Islamic lunar calendar. He stopped using the kalima, that is the Muslim profession of faith, that is la ilaha illallah, Muhammad or Rasulullah. He stopped using the kalima on the coins. And this was to prevent non-Muslims from defiling the name of Allah and his messenger. He put the name of Allah on the coins. You never quite know what people might do with it. He also reinstated the stipend for masjid or mosque imams. Aurangzeb prohibited music at the royal court he discontinued the practice of appearing in the jaroka or the window so he could be seen by the people. This is a common thing you may see with uh, several royals or or people in authority. They may stand on a balcony or in an open window and wave to the teeming crowds who are just cheering them on. Rongzab didn't like any of that stuff. He wasn't a politician, as he mentioned before. He didn't like that stuff. And to him, this was too similar to to uh, king worship, and so he wouldn't do that. He would not allow that to go on during his reign. Rongzib also appointed a new official called a muhtasib, or an ombudsman, who was to ensure and promote moral conduct. This muhtasib, this new official, enforced the ban on music, on cannabis, on dancing, on gambling, and all other un-Islamic practices. But Aurangzeb also brought some non-religious changes to the government. One of his first actions as emperor was to abolish many of the taxes from his father's time. Shah Jahan, as we mentioned in the previous episode, was a bit of a spendthrift with with all of his peacock thrones and Taj Mahals. He was a bit of a spendthrift. And to fund these building projects, he had to raise taxes. Well, Aurangzeb got rid of a lot of those, and this did provide some relief to the people within the Mughal Empire. And, of course, Aurangzeb appointed his supporters as the new governors of the various provinces. For instance, Mirajumla, who was Aurangzeb's right-hand man, was made the governor of Bengal. Ashaistah Khan became the governor of the Deccan. Sheikh Mir became the governor of Kabul. All right before we wrap up, let's talk about Aurangzeb and his Hindu subjects. A lot has been made of Arangzeb's various decrees and actions against the non-Muslims of the Mughal Empire, especially the Hindus. When you read the histories that describe these decrees that Arangzeb uh, laid out, they're often called discriminatory. You often hear the word bigot being thrown against Arangzeb. Now, one of the things that Arangzeb did order was the destruction of Hindu temples. There are some estimates, I don't know how true they are, but there are some estimates that say as many as 60,000 temples, 60,000 Hindu temples were destroyed during his reign. Now, this destruction of temples was not just random. Aurangzeb was following a certain line of Islamic thought that prohibits newly built temples temples of other faiths in muslim lands it's not just for hindus it's also for uh, churches and synagogues as well and this line of thought also prohibits the repair of older temples or churches or synagogues and things like that now i have heard of this rule i have heard of this line of thought in, in islam but i'm not quite sure where where it originates i'm not i'm pretty certain it's not in the quran i'm pretty certain of that But there may be a hadith that promotes it. I really don't know. If you do know, feel free to share with me. I'm on Instagram, YouTube, or X, Islamic History Podcasters. Let me know if you know the origin of this fatwa, this Islamic ruling, by any chance. And who knows, there may be differences of opinion regarding it. But nonetheless, Aurangzeb did destroy lots of Hindu temples. No doubt about that. I want to really just discuss some of the major temples that Aurangzeb had ordered demolished. One of the temples destroyed by Aurangzeb's decree was the famous Somnath Temple in Gujarat. This temple was over 500 years old at the time of Aurangzeb, so if it was around today, it would be nearly a thousand years old. This temple was dedicated to Shiva, which is one of the main Hindu deities, and over its 500 years' existence, it had been destroyed and rebuilt many times. But Aurangzeb ordered its final destruction, I should say, in 1706, though it was rebuilt 200 years later in 1951. Another temple that Aurangzeb had demolished was the Vishwanath Temple in Varanasi. This temple was located in Varanasi, which is in Uttar Pradesh, on the banks of the Ganges River, and it was also dedicated to the Hindu deity Shiva. Once it was destroyed, Aurangzeb had its material used to build a masjid in the area, though the temple was rebuilt in the 1700s. Another major temple that was destroyed by Aurangzeb was the Kishav Dio Temple, which was destroyed in 1670. This was located in Mathura, which is also in Uttar Pradesh. And according to Hindu theology, this temple was, was located where Krishna was supposedly born. This temple was also rebuilt in the 20th century. Aurangzeb believed that these temples, especially these ancient uh, old temples, these major temples that had long histories in the regions... He believed that these temples were having a negative impact on local Muslims, perhaps uh, pulling them away from their Islamic heritage and, and convincing them or encouraging them to indulge in un-Islamic practices. There's another allegation thrown against Arangzeb, and it is true. It's not a it is a true allegation, okay? So it's not like it's it's a lie or anything. This was the jizya, the taxes that a Rongzeb imposed on Hindus. First, he reinstated a tax on Hindu pilgrimages that had previously been abolished by Akbar the Great. He also canceled monetary grants for Hindu priests and temples. So that was two things. He took away money that was going to the Hindus, and then he charged more money on, on the Hindus. There's also an allegation, though I don't know how true it is, there's an allegation that Hindu merchants faced higher import duties than Muslim merchants. But the big thing was the jizya. In 1679, Aurangzeb reinstated the jizya on non-Muslims living in the Mughal Empire, and this led to massive protests. Now, we're going to discuss Aurangzeb's jizya decree in more detail later in the series, but it is important to know that from the Hindu perspective, at least they felt that they were being treated as second-class citizens. Whether these actions were right or wrong in Islam, I can't really judge. However, it is believed that these decrees from Aurangzeb helped to turn the majority Hindu population against Mughal rule. And yes, then, as now, most of the people in the Indian subcontinent were Hindu. That's going to wrap it up for today in the next episode, inshallah we will discuss the continued growth of two major Mughal enemies, the British East India Company and the Hindu Marathas. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash islamichistory. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfi Karsarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa as Welcome back to Afghanistan Season 1, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. This season, we are discussing the Soviet-Afghan war, and this is Episode 1-8. So we're going to begin by discussing the early life, the early career of Ahmed Shah Massoud, also known as the Lion of Panjshir. Now, Ahmad Shah Massoud was born to a fairly well-off Tajik family in the Panjshir Valley in 1953. His father was a colonel in the Afghan army, and Ahmad Shah Massoud himself studied architecture at Kabul Polytechnic Institute. At this school, most of his professors were Afghans who had been educated in the Soviet Union However, Ahmed Shah Massoud himself learned to speak French and surprisingly enough, never learned to speak either English nor Russian. In 1972, Massoud started getting involved in politics and he was connected to a group known as the Muslim Youth Organization or MYO. MYO was affiliated with Jamiati Islami, which was led by Burhanuddin Rabbani. We mentioned Jamiatul Islami was one of the seven Mujahideen groups. At this point in time, it was more of a political organization, but it would eventually become one of the seven Mujahideen groups based in Peshawar, Pakistan. We discussed the seven Mujahideen groups back in episode four, and we also mentioned that Jamiyatu Islami was a mostly Tajik group. The following year, in 1973, Masu got into a fight with one of his professors and fled across the border into Pakistan. And as it turned out, in Pakistan, at the time, Zulfiqar Bhutto was the, I'm not sure if he was either the president or the prime minister, but he was the guy in charge. And his government gave asylum and military training to members of the Muslim Youth organization, and both Ahmed Shah Massoud and Gulbuddin Hekmatyar took advantage of this training. What this shows is that Pakistan and the ISI were already involved with Afghan resistance movements long before the Soviets invaded. Because at this time in 1973, Dawood Khan was the president of Afghanistan. And Dawood Khan, though he did stage a coup against his own cousin, he was not a communist. In 1975, many of these people who had been trained in Pakistan, including Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, including Ahmad Shah Massoud and other Afghan dissidents, they staged a coup against Dawood Khan. The coup failed miserably, and many of these rebels were killed or imprisoned. Masoud himself managed to evade capture. He fled into the mountains and then went back across the border into Pakistan. For the next several years, he took a break from politics and and, uh, revolutionary activities and just immersed himself in reading. And he began to really study several revolutionary and military books. For instance, books by Mao Tung, Che Guevara, Charles de Gaulle, Vu Nyan Jap, who was the Vietnamese general that defeated both the French and the Americans. He also read the book, the ancient Chinese book on military philosophy that we all know of, The Art of War. In May 1979, Ahmed Shah Massoud got involved in politics and and revolutionary activities again, this time against North Taraki's communist government that was now leading Afghanistan. And Ahmed Shah Massoud, starting with only 24 men, he was soon able to drive the Afghan communist forces out of the Panjshir Valley. From there, he went on to capture Gulbahar, which is a town about 30 miles north of Kabul, and he used that conquest to stage an attack on the Salang Highway, which cut Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, off from northern Afghanistan. So he took four years to study and learn and read about military uh, philosophy, revolutionary philosophy. And then when the communists came into power in Afghanistan, he used that to pretty much take over the Pasha Valley from the Afghan communist government. But of course, the government eventually responded, and they responded with a a major offensive. And in this government campaign, Masoud was wounded and forced to retreat deeper into the Panjshir Valley. However, he still maintained control over much of it.